Tonight, we're going to talk about depression and uh, winning that particular battle. And uh, this has been inspired by uh, some friends, family members close to me who were on the verge or at least in the space of suicide where that was a consideration for them which can be quite a journey from there to actually doing it, but to just have that be in your consideration and to live in that space in one's life is a very sad thing. And we need not do it. We need not live in that space. And also some friends and clients who struggle with the severest forms of depression and that seem intractable, really don't respond to drugs or anything else. And I realized that what I really need to do is put together a whole curriculum, and this is the first step in that. This is an overview. It's specific enough that anyone could go to work and actually use it. It's not broken down well enough for a person to take daily or weekly steps which lead them out of it. So, But this is the first overview. This you can have for free. And uh, hopefully you, you will follow this up with a step-by-step uh, plan to uh, get rid of depression. And that means a system that coaches you. And I'm not offering my time as a coach. That my time is... is is in very high demand, but rather I'm offering you a system, a system of taking a lesson per day where you can get coaching from that. So for those who need that, and probably most serious cases do need that, and they need someone that gives them a piece to do for a little while until they can start to use that as a regular part of their life. And then that's to be followed with an opportunity to have to give someone else feedback about how you're doing. And so this is this is coming in the next few months. We'll have such a system in place for depression. Right now we're going to give the the information that you need if you have the strength to go ahead and get started even on part of it, every part of this will yield results. You do not need to do the whole thing to get results. And most people will not need to do the whole thing to get all the way better. A few people will have to do every part of this to get all the way better. So we're dividing this into this discussion uh, tonight into five separate categories. And these grow uh, somewhat organically uh, when we get to understand the depression problem. Now, nothing in my discussion is going to to tell you about dealing with antidepressant drugs. But here's a few facts to consider. Even the the medical research that has been done on antidepressant drugs shows 
that the only benefit, if there's any benefit beyond placebo, the only benefit people get uh, is in, in almost all cases only for the first 90 days or so. And that after that, the efficacy starts dropping off sharply. The other thing is, we know that antidepressants will make permanent changes to your brain, and your brain will never quite be the same afterward. So, we, I, I don't include that in here, but I have to say, just in the modern world, if you're someone who's looking at depression or cannot live your life, and you've done all that you're able, you may find that's a problem with depression, is is what are you actually able to do? So I'm going to give you a whole bunch of things that a person, if we're just talking about their physical and mental capacity, they could do it. But with depression in the mix, it's a sort of disabling condition. So you don't necessarily have the power to do what you have the power to do. And this is something that that makes it a complex issue. And the reason I bring up the antidepressants is because I want to just be absolutely clear that while I'm against them and I don't want anybody on them, I recognize that there are people and situations where they really ought to be on antidepressants. Uh, and that's a tough decision to make, and I can't tell you when to make it. And But I do think it should be made cautiously, but it should not be treated as though it's something that should never be done, because there are occasions when it should be. Now, frankly, the way antidepressants are handed out in the modern world today, I think is criminal. Most of those people should be seeing some kind of therapist or coach who gets them doing some basically healthier things, gets them out of the depressive state, and they should never even have considered giving them antidepressant medication that is known to change the brain chemistry forever. I think that's criminal. I think something really should be done about that. But there are people and situations where it is absolutely the best choice to make. I want to be absolutely clear about that. And so I I go forward from here having said that. And I hope that you will just be wise in making that decision. Um, and then if you're going to go on antidepressants, as soon as you're able, start making some of these changes. Okay. Now, of course, depression is in part a symptom of a life out of balance. So it's not just about uh, brain chemistry or bad thought habits. There are generally things that are not right in the person's life and that brings the depression on. And so in the scope of our discussion today... You're not really going to uh, be talking much about the life out of balance, about the problem that triggered the depression. But of course, that's something 
that a person should work on. And one of the things every person should do is they should have a a a kind of goal sheet that they post where they can see it and they read it aloud every day. And those goals should include perhaps baby steps, but steps to get out of, to fix whatever is out of balance in their life that has sort of triggered the depression, the thing that is actually wrong, that is actually a problem, that actually needs remediation, whether it's finances or relationships or health, etc. Some of those things cannot be remediated. Uh, If you lose your legs in a tragic accident and you no longer can walk, uh, there's no perfect answer for that. But there are at least some remedial options where a person can learn to use prosthetics in many cases. Or if not, the person can learn to swim without legs. The person can uh, still get out and do things in a wheelchair without legs. Um, Life should not be stopped on that account. And I know something about having a problem that uh, cannot be at least not reasonably, for me, remedied. And it's something I live with. It causes me pain. It keeps me from doing things that I would like to do, but I can't do because of this. So I know a little bit about that, more than a little. And uh, while I, I still have my legs and my arms, I do understand the problem and I understand that it can be very, very difficult. But one of the things, and this can be our first lesson, is we have to make a decision. Are we going to allow whatever this is to own us? Or are we going to continue to get in the trenches and do battle? If battle is what we must do to live our lives, are we going to get in there and do battle? Or are we going to let whatever it is that is taking over our lives just take it over? And this is an important question. It's a question right at the beginning, really, because I got to say, this entire course is all about how to do battle effectively. In fact, I called, I titled the, the notes from which I'm taking this discussion, Depression defense, meaning this is an attacker that we can either defend ourselves against or we can succumb to it. And I realize that's difficult, but what is the alternative? The alternative is you succumb to it. There's not an option there. If you don't defend, if you don't go out and fight, against this particular demon, it will just take over your life and it will make your life not worth living. So I'm coming from the position that we should go to work and do what we can. And
and fight a good fight. Let's let our face be the face that is marred with blood and sweat and tears. The one who's actually in the arena, choosing to live life. And in this case, this particular slice of living life is doing the battle inside ourselves to come out victorious at the end. All right, so our five divisions are thought and tr thought training and habits. And this is a lot about just learning to move our thoughts in a positive way. This is positive psychology. This is um, work that has been done in self-help for many years, longer than I've been alive, actually. And uh, I've studied it nearly my whole life. I actually got my first self-help tape, uh, and I listened to it uh, about a, a hundred times or more, many, many, many times, uh, starting when I was about 12 years old or 11 years old. And um, uh, there was a car that I would drive. I grew up in a rural community. And uh, there was an old junker car that I'd access to that I would drive up in the field to herd the cows out on the canal bank because we had a small field and there wasn't enough pasture for the summer. So we'd run them on the canal bank to get them more pasture and then put them back in so that we could get hay off of the other part of the farm. And that's how we kept our small herd of cows uh, going year after year. And that car had a cassette player. And this was a cassette tape. And I would drive up there and plug it in and listen to it uh, nearly every day, all summer long, while I herded the cows. And I would watch them. I had nothing else to do. And this was how I passed the time. And I've never stopped. I've never stopped bringing in that kind of mental training for myself. And I can tell you right now, that that's worth it. That's important stuff. That puts you in condition to fight this kind of fight. So the second lesson should be that we, that we use every opportunity that comes before us to condition ourselves for this fight. And that means listening to self-help, uh, reading books on positive psychology, maybe taking courses on positive psychology. These are things that we can do to, to continue to enrich our capacity to defend ourselves in this way. So that's number two. Uh... The next thing is I'm going to give you f some activities to do from positive psychology that uh, there was a wonderful talk on TED Talks by uh, uh, a fellow, I think his name is Sean Aker. Anyway, uh, gave a great talk and gave us basically five things that we should do. And uh, so we're going to call 
instruction number three, the five things from Sean Aker, even though I might be butchering his name. I do not have it right in front of me. In any case, these five things are, number one, to journal every day. The first two are actually journaling. Uh, number one is to journal every day 20 things. You can just list them or make maybe a short sentence, but 20 things for which you are grateful. Gratitude changes your brain chemistry. It's as simple as that. You don't like your brain chemistry. You don't like what it's doing. You need to exercise more gratitude, a lot more. So that's the first thing. The second one is also a journaling activity. But in this case, you're going to journal three things. And by the way, uh, the first thing, the 20 items, and these three things need to be uh, new things. And uh, so each day, you're going to pick new things. The three things, what you will do is you will describe three things going right in your life right now. And this should be more than just a line. This should take up half a page, three quarters of a page, each time you you journal this. You should be describing with a paragraph or two um, what's going on, why this is something good happening in your life. Okay, number three is uh, just a very simple thing. It's the, the simple thing of getting physical exercise. Now, on my list of five things, uh, the fifth is going to give you physical exercises to do. So uh, it's going to be included in our discussion, but uh, I'm giving it to you here. Get physical exercise every day. Go for a walk, go for a run, pick up some weights and lift them for five minutes. It doesn't matter. What matters is that your brain gets the message over and over and over and over that what we do physically matters, that it has meaning and consequences, that we don't begin to believe or our brain uh, on a subconscious level never starts believing that our activities don't matter. Of course they matter. Now, uh, then number four is uh, meditation. Now, the thing about meditation is it's something we need in order to unhook our brains from what uh, Sean Aker calls cultural ADHD. In other words, there's a phenomenon owing to phones, advertisement, television, um, computers, email. There's a phenomenon where our brains are being drawn constantly into an activity of jumping from thing to thing to thing, uh, we only have the attention of a butterfly, basically, or a goldfish. Um, we simply cannot hold our focus at all. And this is corrected through meditation. Uh, 
Now, meditation can be many things. For a long time, I did meditation and exercise together by practicing Tai Chi until I became very good at it. And uh, at least at least I had it. I, I knew it very well. I don't know that I'd developed the subtlety of a master, but I was I was became a proper student by the time I was done, and uh, had the whole thing memorized. And uh, so that for me was meditation and exercise together. Um, now I I do them separately. I have simple qigong exercises and cardiovascular exercises and breathing exercises, which I'm going to talk to you about uh, when we get there, and uh, number five, uh, that I do. And then my meditation comes separately. When I lay down or relax, if I have a few minutes to relax, I do a meditation where I trace the acumeridians that run through the body that are involved in Chinese medicine. I trace them with my mind, with awareness, and I move slowly enough that I can follow it with sensation. And I get faster as time goes on, but I want the sensation to follow my trace. I don't just want a mental indicator. I want to feel something in my body. And so uh, this is what I do for meditation now. There are many kinds of meditation. Pick something, learn something that works for you, and do it every day. Meditation also changes brain chemistry. Finally, number five from Sean Aker is put something positive into somebody else's life every day. In fact, what he said to do is put something positive in some somebody else's inbox every day. Some compliment, some statement of gratitude, something you appreciate about them or think they're doing well. Give them a little boost every day. Uh, this was the hardest for me. It's not my nature to do this. And when I do compliment people, I tend to be um, uh, very uh, severe is not the right word, strong about it. And it can be embarrassing. And that was hard for me. But when I initially learned about this, I did it. I did it faithfully for months in order to change what my brain was doing, change the behavior of my brain. That's the point. That's the whole idea of thought training and habits is to change the behavior of your brain. So, all right, that's number three. Let's go on to number four. So number three was the five uh, behaviors or five disciplines from Sean Aker. Now number four, we're going to go on. And um, we're going to talk a little bit about just observing your own thinking and being willing to make a change when it's wrong. So this is going to segue into the second point. Uh, so we're going to um, uh, uh, just sort of finish off our discussion here. Because I've given you enough, really. I, I, I could talk about many, many things. I have, I have whole seminars just around the thought training and habits that I've designed and, and taught. But, uh, but I'm not going to give you a lot more. I'm just going to end with this one because it segues so nicely into the next one. But this is all about recognizing when a thought comes in that has a negative value, or even just a neutral value. We want all thoughts 
to come in and have a beneficial value. So this involves a little discussion that was captured in a, in a movie that I love called Secondhand Lions. Uh, this discussion about that one of the characters explains to another character this talk he gives us, what every young man needs to know to become a man speech. And he gives part of it to the kid who's the star of the show. And he, he tells him there are certain things that you should just believe in. Not because they're true. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. But he says that's not why you believe in them. You believe in them because they're worth believing in. Because they're the kind of things you just ought to believe in. You ought to believe that it matters how you treat others. I'm, I'm not, I've left his speech now and I'm going into my own. You ought to believe that it matters how you treat others. You ought to believe that preserving liberty matters. You ought to believe that the truth rises in the end, that truth is worth defending and worth living by. You ought to believe that there are things worth fighting for. You ought to believe that dignity and character are important components of the quality of your life, the health of your life, and its meaning to the planet and to others. There are just things you ought to believe. You ought to believe that staying clean, living right, matters and is worth it. You ought to believe that keeping your own space organized and healthy matters. You ought to believe that how you drive and how you dress and how you speak and how you think, especially how you think about others, matters. You ought to believe that when we think about others, we ought to think of them the way that we want to be thought about when we're not around. Now, there's a golden rule comes in there. You might have heard of it. But certainly, when we think about others, it's too easy to be critical, to be angry, to be judgmental, or to consider that they must be great and we must be nothing, which, of course, the depressed person's a little more likely to do. But none of those things are healthy. Healthy thinking judges things just as they are. It sees things as they are. It gives the value to things that they have. Not too much, not too little. Gives the value to what they have. That's healthy thinking. A person ought to believe that it's possible to make the world run in such a way that people have what they need and have autonomy and independence and can take care of themselves and that technology can be developed that will provide each person what they needs need independent of central resources, that liberty is a fact and characteristic of the universe and that anything short of that is harming the universe. That's the kind of belief we ought to have.
And then we go looking for a solution with all of those things in mind. We go creating with our lives better things for everyone with all of those things in mind, all of our character, all of our dignity, all of our honor and honesty, liberty for all, and justice for all. All of those things play in to our effort to find the solution that's going to answer the needs of every person. Because as we do that, the whole planet, the whole world, the whole universe becomes better. That's the kind of thinking we ought to have. And we should not accept other thoughts, whether they're factual or not, is really irrelevant. What we need to do is believe certain things because they're the right thing to believe. Whether they're true or not is irrelevant. It don't pay to believe anything else. So we believe those things. All right. So that concludes item number one. Uh, And the next item is actual competition moments. Now, to understand this, we need to understand that learning all about something is not the same thing as learning something. Someone, uh, I'm trying to remember his name now. Well, it's not going to come to me. But it was one of the seminars I I listened to. Uh, His first name was Paul, but... uh, it's not coming to me his last name. Anyway, he it wasn't from me, but it's good good advice. He said, you hear somebody say, or you might have said to yourself, after making a mistake, ah, I knew better than that. And he says, well, no, you didn't. You only knew about better than that. He says there's a distinction between knowing something and knowing about something. And he says, how do you know if you know something? He says, if you know something, you live it. If you don't live it, you merely know about it. And this is the key essence of actual competition moments. Now, I've called it actual competition moments based on a talk that I listened to, a, a, a six, training for success, um, given by a uh, a martial artist uh, that I listened to. I, I think his name is Black Hawk. In any case, he um, he's a martial artist. He took world champion when he was very old. Uh, it was a surprise that he could do it when he was that old. Um, he took it in single competition and... Uh, and went on to teach a lot of people about personal success. But he tells a story in his in his training where uh, there's a a martial artist who's talking about you know he's naming off all the who's who of of the martial arts world and how he's had training with all of them and and he's such a great martial artist and he's. He's just going to go in and win, and he's going to this competition, and 
Another guy who'd not had much training came to uh, Blackhawk and says, uh, can you teach me a few things about competing to help me be successful? And he did. He taught him just a few things, not a lot, but enough to compete. And they, those two ended up coming up against each other. And uh, the individual who was bragging about all of his trainers lost very quickly. It wasn't much of a competition at all. And he, he went afterward uh, to Blackhawk and he says, um, what, what, do you think, what do you think happened here? Why did I lose, you know, when I'd had all this training? And uh, Blackhawk says, well, how many of your instructors had actually competed in, you know, in real competitions for against other martial artists? And uh, he said, well, I guess none of them. They'd all just taught in dojos and had a reputation and and taught a lot of skills and but weren't really competing. He says, well, there's a difference between learning martial arts for skill and learning martial arts for competition. And uh, so the advice you got for competition from your teachers was not the right advice. And when we when we start talking about the difference between number one, thought training and habits, which by the way is very important, and number two, the actual competition moments, we are talking about two different things. Number one, it gets your brain working a certain way and it will certainly get you healthier and happier and more successful. But when it really matters is when that moment comes that it's difficult to think about what you should. When it's difficult to take correction. When you hear somebody else point out maybe, maybe in an unkind way even, something that you're doing wrong and you're tempted to defend yourself rather than fix yourself. When it feels like a punch in the gut and your pride rages in your ears and all you want to do is defend your position, that's where the actual competition moments are. Everything before that was just knowing about living a healthier life. The choice to live a healthier life, that comes now. That comes in the actual moments when it's hard to make the right decision. In fact, that's where all the power is. There's, I don't want to understate the value of, number one, thought, training, and habits. It, it really is very powerful. But it doesn't really work the way that it should. It doesn't really work when you need it to the most. Unless in the moment, in the heat of the moment, when the correction opportunity comes, you can take the correction and make the correction. And be genuinely grateful for that opportunity. You have to be able to appreciate the value 
of making a change. Maybe even a change you never thought you should have to make. You know, if you're doing something dumb and you know it, cutting corners, not wearing safety glasses when you're using a bench grinder, for example. You're doing something dumb and you know it. It's not all that hard to have someone correct you, to go to the eye doctor with, to get the sliver pulled out of your eye, the metal sliver, and he pulls it out. Look, you know, this is really stupid. I mean, he wouldn't say that, I hope, but he thinks it. This is really stupid of you. Where are your safety glasses? You only got one set of eyes. But it's not too hard to take that. But when you think you're right, when you're on a campaign, a crusade, maybe even pushing other people around, and the moment comes up when somebody says, that's a crappy attitude, or you need to think better, or actually you're misled, your campaign that you're on is wrong. Where the rubber meets the road is now. That's the actual competition moment. That's the competition where you get to see if you're a theoretical martial artist or if you're a real martial artist. This is mind kung fu and it's no longer training day. It's time for you to fight. And mind kung fu says you're going to take that correction. You're going to listen carefully. Because you've already made the decision and you don't need to make it again. You've already made the decision that what matters to you is having healthy, correct thinking, good character, and dignity. That's what matters to you. It doesn't matter that you've been campaigning on the wrong side. What matters is you have the opportunity to get on the right side. And everything is weighed in the balance precisely that way. Because what you really want is a good outcome. What you really want is to make a mark that's truly good. And for that to happen, you can't make your campaign more important than doing what's right. You can't make your momentum more important than the moment that arises where you have the opportunity to do it better, to fix something that's wrong. This is the moment where everything matters. Can you do this? Can you do it in the moment? The power, the discipline to do this is everything you need in order to take this information and transform your life with it. If you can't do it in the heat of the moment, if you cannot do it when it's difficult, if you cannot swallow your pride, put on a smile and mean it and say, thank you. You're right. I'd like to do better. If you can't do that, you really no good. You really don't have any power to do anything good in the world until that moment arrives. Anybody can be swept wrong by the current, 
But when the current's taking you the wrong way, it takes someone special, someone powerful, to go ahead and swim out of that current and get going the right way. Never mind that everybody else is still in the current. So here we are. That's number two, the actual competition moments. Hard things, important things. Number three is nutrition everyone should know. Now, there's a lot to discuss here, but the short discussion goes something like this. People get depressed because their brain is stuck in nighttime mode, which is also known as parasympathetic mode. Now, many people have learned parasympathetic and sympathetic in ways that are not very useful. They come in stressed, the massage therapist tells them, or some, uh, you know, uh, some clinician who's just trying to, like, switch your brain out of stress mode, says, oh yeah, you're in sympathetic mode. What they mean by that is you've been hijacked by a sympathetic episode. Something's happened that is highly stressful, that puts you in a fight-or-flight mode. You've been hijacked by it, and you're having trouble calming back down. They're not talking about the overall tendency of your brain. I am. The overall tendency of your brain needs to be to go into nighttime mode when it's nighttime and daytime mode when it's daytime and an appropriate distance, not too far and not too little, into that side of the brain function. So the irony is that people who are stuck in parasympathetic dominance are more likely to not be able to cope with stress when it comes. So consequently, they're in sympathetic hijack all the time, even though the real problem is that their brain overall is not getting into sympathetic mode at all. It's not getting into daytime mode. So consequently, they get depressed easily. They have sloppy joints. Their immune system freaks out easily. So they have allergies all the time. Their cell junctions are loose. So everything that comes along, they catch. Their immune system works very well. It's getting stimulated all the time. Unfortunately, it's overstimulated. They have a lot of inappropriate responses um, to, you know, where they have a lot more inflammation than they should have and discomfort than they should have. And, um, And unfortunately, every allergen, every toxin, every microbe that comes along gets in because the cell junctions are sloppy. And, um... Uh, This person feels inflamed and they feel like they're holding fluid all the time. And this is the classic parasympathetic nighttime dominant. Daytime dominants have their own problems. We don't want to be dominant. We want to be balanced. We want around 8 o'clock at night to start veering over into nighttime mode. By 10 o'clock we should be there and it should put us to sleep. At 4 o'clock in the morning, we should start switching over to daytime mode. By 6 o'clock in the morning, we should be there, and it should wake us up. And that's how it should go every day. 
If that happens, there won't be any depression problems. There won't be sloppy joints. There won't be low thyroid and adrenal function. There won't be poor circulation of the brain. So how do we do that? How do we deal with that? Well, the nutritional method is the easiest. It's not the only way, but it's the easiest way. The nutritional approach is uh, supplement with standard processed calcium lactate. And nowadays you have to get the powder because they changed the recipe of the tablets. They're no longer the original recipe. So you have to buy the powder and you take a teaspoon of that with two Zypan, Z-Y-P-A-N, also a standard processed product. And all this is available from my website, soundmountainhealing.com. And uh, you go ahead and and take that every morning on an empty stomach and then wait a half an hour, 45 minutes before eating. And then uh, that will gradually switch you into daytime mode. Other things that are a good idea, avoid magnesium altogether. If you want more magnesium in your life, uh, supplement with a, st- with a Dr. Christopher original formula called Jurassic Green. That will give you all the magnesium you need. You don't need to supplement with magnesium. Supplementing with magnesium will hijack your ability to get into daytime mode. So we don't want to do that. It'll tend to make you depressed. If you take magnesium for too long, you will certainly get depressed. You would just have problems with it. So we don't want to do that. Uh, There are just a handful of people who actually need to supplement with magnesium. None of them need to take very much. Um, so, and even those cases, I'm always suspicious. I've watched a couple of them where they actually didn't absorb magnesium very well. They seem to need to supplement with it and it still seems to start making them worse after a while. So, you know, I, I know what popular, uh, tabloid health literature is saying about magnesium and they're wrong. I'm sorry. They're using it in a pharmaceutical way, not a nutritional way. And if they were honest about it, they would recognize that. Um, So other things that are good to avoid, though none of these is as important as magnesium, would be citrus fruit, sugar, dairy, all vegetable oils. Things that are good to consume are apples, blueberries, anything fermented, uh, green beans, um, grass-fed, 100% grass-fed beef, wild meat, uh, butter, fish oil, sauerkraut, kimchi, those are fermented things. Uh, robust vegetables that you could make sauerkraut or kimchi out of, you know, carrots and cabbage and beets and broccoli and Brussels sprouts and, and, um, cauliflower and, and, uh, radishes and, uh, parsnips and and so on and so forth. Uh, these are things that could be these are robust vegetables that make wonderful uh, sauerkraut. And when you eat them, they also make sauerkraut in your gut, which is very helpful. Um, so those are all things that are very helpful. In addition to that, there are some herbs that are uh, can be very helpful. Saint John's wort is famous for helping with serotonin. It takes about six weeks to reach full strength. So when you start taking St. John's wort, um, 
you want to, you know, if you get the Herb Farm brand, that's Herb Farm is P-H-A-R-M. If you get the Herb Farm St. John's Wort, that's good stuff. But uh, uh, you're going to take two droppers full of that tincture a day. And, but you don't expect it to really start working for four to six weeks. So you, you got to be patient. But it's a wonderful aid that helps the brain. Um, lion's mane, uh, very famous mushroom, taken with fresh juice in the morning, and that would be carrot apple juice. And you you juice about a, a pint of carrot apple juice and uh, take two or three capsules of lion's mane with that in the morning, and it's going to improve the function of your brain substantially. And that will help keep depression away. Uh, another thing that's very helpful is just good fish oil. I use uh, primarily the Nordic Naturals Ultimate Omega with D. And I take that. And that's a very helpful nutrition for depression. Uh, Dr. Christopher made a product called Liver Transition Formula. And uh, it's actually David Christopher's formula. And um, it's a wonderful formula for depression. I would say about half of the people who use it, that's all they need to do is take between two and six of those a day. And they function pretty well. Depression is kept down to a, you know, a, a one or two out of ten. So um, ten out of ten would be I can't leave the couch. And I might be killing myself soon. And uh, a zero out of ten is I'm not aware of feeling depressed at all. I'm happy. And um, so they're a one or a two. They're aware that they're not doing great, but they're out living life, doing things, enjoying things. And when you're out living life and enjoying things, you don't feel depressed. And so what it amounts to is they're not feeling depressed very often. So those are very helpful things. So the other thing about nutrition that everyone should know is if you're eating food that you couldn't make in a cave, in other words, food that went through some kind of chemical processing or laboratory in order to make it, um, big factory to go through all these complicated steps to make it, um, that's not food. That's poison. And you should not eat any of that kind of food or uh, if it's once or twice a month, that's okay. On special occasions, like uh, perhaps if you're traveling or something, you might not be able to do quite as well with diet. But basically, you should not consume those kinds of foods at all. So food that is not real food should simply be avoided. And, um, and then in addition to that, uh, a whole exclusively whole food diet, aim at 51% raw. And of course, we've already talked about what kinds of vegetables you would eat raw and fruit that you would eat raw. Um, not lettuce or spinach. It's okay to include those, but what you're going to eat are the robust vegetables I mentioned earlier. And the apples and everything in the rose family is okay, actually. Apples and peaches and pears and plums and apricots. 
and almonds and cherries. Those are all just fine. So they're all going to be helpful. All right. So our next category is healing your brain injury. It's important to know that many times depression happens after the brain has been injured chemically, mechanically, surgically, by a virus, by a fever, some kind of brain injury has occurred. And that leads to depression. So let's talk about what to do about that. So first and foremost, if you, if you have a stubborn case of depression, you should assume there's a brain injury, even if you don't remember it. And if there's a brain injury, you're going to need to stop looking at devices and computers. Now, in the mild cases, they can just stop looking at devices and computers, phones, tablets, etc., iPhones or, or I, Apple Watches, etc. They can just stop about two hours before bedtime. So if you're going to go to bed at, you know, 8 or 8.30, by 6 or 6.30, put the device away. Don't look at it again for the rest of the night. Uh, in severe cases, they actually need to stop using a device at all. They should They should get another get someone to help them retrieve messages and um, they should just not look at the device at all period and um, until their brain heals all the way that's a big deal it can be very difficult uh, some people you know one of the people who struggles has a job where she's working on a computer and um, and I worry about that I'm like I wonder if that is going to be you know an insurmountable task. If it's a brain injury that caused her case, it will be. So that's number one. There are five steps here. Uh, step number two is you're, if, you ha if you're working with a brain injury, you never do anything, including sit at a computer or drive a car or anything else, clean the house, anything, past the point of fatigue. When you start to get fatigued, you need to go do something else. Or lay down and rest, obviously without the phone, without music on, without any stimulation. The brain needs to actually rest. Uh, or go for a walk. Um, but no matter what, never go past the point of fatigue. So that's number two. Number three is go for three 15-minute walks a day. In order to get your brain communicating and healthy, you have to walk 12 miles a day. But you can get 90% of the benefit by taking three 15-minute walks a day. So most people aren't going to walk 12 miles a day. But anybody, pretty much, can walk three 15-minute walks a day. They maybe aren't doing it, but it's not because they can't do it. And uh, so don't lie to yourself. You probably can do it. Right. So if you've, you know, unless you're disabled and can't walk. Right. And then, of course, that we talked about that before. That's a that's a serious and difficult problem. And it's not, you know, it's not unheard of. But uh, but for everybody else, you can do it. Go do it. 
All right, so we've got devices, no go past fatigue, and three 15-minute walks a day. Oh, by the way, those walks need to be outside where your brain can get gentle, pleasant stimulation. So just go walk down the street, look at cars, houses, yards, whatever. Okay, Or go to the park, whatever. I don't care, but, but it needs to be pleasant stimulation, gentle stimulation for the brain. Uh, number four, no sugar, no refined sweeteners at all, no corn sweeteners, no artificial sweeteners, no uh, white sugar, no processed sugar, period. Honey's okay, fruit's okay, uh, um, maple syrup is okay, but no refined sugar. All right. So... Uh, uh, we found out that the the injury to the brain of sugar, of that processed sugar, is just, it's really too much for your brain to handle. Um, and it's really necessary uh, to, um, to stay completely away from that as part of healing the brain. So we've got four out of five here. Let's see. Um, I don't have these written down in front of me, so I'm having to pull them out of my brain here. So we've got uh, device time. We've got, oh yes, I, re I remember the fifth one now. Uh, the fifth one is you need to be asleep between 11 and 6. If you have difficulty sleeping, that's okay. Your job is to lay in a completely dark room thinking about happy things. You can meditate. You can do those meridian meditations I mentioned earlier, which, by the way, put most people to sleep. Um, so that'll get you there. Um, you can do toe wiggling exercise, which is an old Qigong exercise for regulating circulation. You can do anything that is pleasant. You can just daydream. You can dream of interesting things that are, that are fun or exciting for you. Nothing that makes you angry. Nothing that makes you sad. Those thoughts are not welcome. They have to be trained out. If your brain doesn't know how to do that, you have to teach it how to do that. You have to teach your brain how to take a, a thought that is excessive or harmful and remove it out of your brain and replace it with something else. So, um, you know, that we want to dream about Positive, productive, healthy things. Not anything that makes us angry or passionate or excited in a, in a negative or excessive way. Right. Anyway, you're going to do that between 11 and 6. But between 11 p.m. and 6 a.m., that's the natural circadian rhythm for healing your brain. You must be in the dark, dead dark. And you must be thinking about healthy things if you're not asleep. Okay, This will help ensure that you don't end up with, with Alzheimer's later. So, uh, so that is the five steps of healing your brain injury. So by all means, uh, I should mention on healing brain injury, it's also very good for your brain to get with friends and play a game. As long as you can avoid alcohol, drugs, tobacco, uh, sugar, um, 
and I, I suppose arguing about politics, etc., or being angry about anything. This morning we're going to complete our remarks on depression defense and hopefully get you everything you need to uh, go on and start making a real difference. These these uh, these tools are are well established and there's no question whatsoever that the person who integrates their life successfully in the way that I've talked about will have a uh, a lifetime that is uh, resistant to depression if the if the right circumstance comes up anyone might be susceptible at at certain moments under the right conditions and so there's no way we can guarantee that uh, just goes away and stays away as much as we would love to have that happen but uh what we want to do is get you to where you're resistant, as resistant as a person can be um, to that kind of, of problem in life. So we, we ended on Depression Defense Part 1 with a discussion of healing your brain and uh, sort of rounded it out with, uh, with talking about uh, the five different steps that you could take. And so uh, these five steps are are really just a fundamental uh, handful literally five fingers in your hand handful of of tools that if you get them down and if you do them it's pretty likely that just that alone is going to make a substantial difference in your health in your happiness in your ability to do what you know to do you know it's a it's a funny thing. Somebody said, it's one thing to know what to do. It's another thing to do what you know. And uh, that's, you know, it's sort of one of those, like, I could have told myself that. Like, it's it's nothing profound. It's nothing earth-shattering. And yet, it's one of those very simple ideas that a person puts forth, like they've solved all the problems in the universe, because that is how you solve all the problems in the universe, right? They're, they're, they are all solved with that simple equation. It's, um, it's just a matter of doing what you know. And we know that if you do what you know, an interesting phenomenon happens. You gain more insights. You gain insights that are personal. You gain insights that apply to everyone. You gain insights that are useful in doing something. You gain insights that are creative, that ultimately allow you to to do something better than you have now, just because you're doing what you know. So uh, it's an interesting phenomenon about humans, and uh, I, I love to tell the story, and I probably will butcher it, as I usually do, but there is a one of the original Star Trek movies. Um, so the original series, and it's one of the movies, though not, not, the, not the series, um, where there's a situation that arises and, uh, a human gets, and if you don't, if you're not familiar with Star Trek, I mean, everybody kind of is, but, uh, there's a character in the original series called Spock and, and he ends up being important, uh, even up to the end, they, they threw him in the latest movies that were made. Um, and, uh, so, He's this really important character, and he's he's very intelligent, and he's a Vulcan. He's not human, and uh, Vulcans have abandoned all emotion, and they operate purely from logic. 
and it allows them to accomplish things that uh, no human can accomplish, and they, they really have this, this uh, increased ability. They also have some problems we see from time to time because of that. They're, they're, they have an emotional side to them that they've just suppressed, and it surges uh, in kind of like puberty, um, and they end up having to deal with that and sort of be controlled by that. But um, uh, in this situation, the this this human who's uh, I don't remember what they're doing, but uh, they say, "Oh, I didn't want that to happen." And um, Spock says, "It's amazing to me how often that happens that humans obtain what they do not want." And I've I found that very ponderable. We do that a lot as humans and and part of the way that we get what we don't want is by not doing what we know to do now of course you can know to do something and be dead wrong right so uh somebody said it's not what you don't know that will hold you back in life or create problems for you in life it's what you know that just ain't so that will do that and so that's a different perspective, obviously, but it's also useful to remember that we can absolutely know that something is right and correct and be dead wrong. Uh, we see that a lot, actually, in, in medicine, in natural healing. The natural healing side is always observing nature. So uh, it's not that we're never wrong, but when something is a really bad idea that the medical profession comes up with primarily to keep people sick because that's how they make their money. The natural healers generally see through it. They notice it and they're like, mm, yeah, no, that's a terrible idea, right? Because set up against the, the backdrop of nature and how nature works, we realize that's violating nature. And when you violate nature, you always have problems. Now, we may not know what problems are coming down the pike, but we know that when you do that, that creates problems. If you want health, you don't get it through taking a drug or taking a vaccine or through uh, shutting yourself in your house or through sterilizing your world. You do it by harmonizing yourself with nature. There's really no other, there's no recourse to that statement. There, there's no way to approach that statement and, and prove it wrong or give any argument against it. It's a matter of living in harmony with nature. Now, within the, the, the domain of living in harmony with nature, there's a lot to discuss, of course. There are things that are wiser and less wise right we stay we keep our environment clean we keep it uh in in a healthy thriving way you can look around nature and see places that are sick because there's no flow through right like a stagnant pond and we realize that that of course there's a better way to work within nature and a a a less effective or even a harmful way to work within nature you you go out and get what used to be called exposure. It's simply a matter of being out in the elements without protection for long enough that your system breaks down and starts losing its ability to manage the stressors of cold and wet and dry and 
wind and the elements, and then you get sick with something, and it results in you uh, having a, a crisis moment, and possibly it can kill you. So there are wise and less wise, way, wise ways to deal with nature. But health is simply not found anywhere outside of nature. So when you try uh, to take your body and violate everything about nature in order to keep yourself healthy, what you are is kind of insane, right? That it's, it's a kind of insanity that's gripped an awful lot of people. And over the last two years, this is 2022, if you're listening to this way out in the future, and over the last two years, my, how's the insanity has grown. <laughs> it has really uh, just overtaken the entire world. Uh, not really. There, there's a lot of pushback as well. There are actually people who, because of that insanity, have recognized it and are like, yeah, no, I'm not going to be part of that. And I'm going to look critically at everything I used to just accept that I was told uh, by the, the medical establishment because obviously you can't trust them. And uh, so it's it's had the reverse effect to, to some extent. But talk about a lot of people who just got a lot crazier about I'm going to absolutely go against everything natural to keep myself well. And I'm sitting there thinking, wow. I, I mean, that's so far from reality. You know, It's like if you go and visit a schizophrenic and they're talking about, you know, the the mice men who have taken over the control of the facility they're in and that they, you know, uh, are terrified they're going to come in at night and, and attack them and, and, and remove their toes and replace them over and over again. And you're sitting there thinking, I don't even know where to start with that. Like you're so far from my reality. I don't know how to reach across the chasm and try to get you by the hand and pull you my way, you know. And schizophrenia is another discussion. And truly, schizophrenia is a is a is an illness that uh, has to do with nutrition and infection and and uh you know there there are probably things that could be done for a lot of those cases if we approach it, you know, uh, in a in a natural healing way. But I'm not talking about healing them. I'm talking about communicating with them. Even enough to get them to cooperate. And one of the challenges with some conditions like schizophrenia is how do you get the person to even cooperate with you? If you're going to do natural healing, even if you know how to cure them, how are you going to get them to cooperate with you if you're talking about mice men removing their toes at night? Um, you just don't know where to go with that, right? And uh, so, you know, this insanity I hear of people thinking they're going to protect themselves from getting sick by violating nature in every imaginable way. And that's their plan. And it's being sold to them, encouraged to them by this very corrupt uh, sort of medical uh, hierarchy. That, that's not the right word. The, the people who are in positions of power in the medical profession are encouraging this. I'm like, <clears throat> all this is going to do is give more power to the medical profession. And it's not going to make anybody healthier. It's going to make every single person who does that sicker. And it's actually going to make the whole world sicker because uh, you can't get 30% even, and it's higher than that. 
But you can't get 30% of the people violating nature every chance they get and not have it affect the health of the whole. So uh, it's actually making everybody sicker and giving this corrupt medical profession a lot more power. And that's their plan. And I'm sitting there, I don't even know where to start having a conversation with you. The insanity of that is beyond anything I can reason with. I don't have the capacity personally uh, to reach in there. Maybe they just need a, you know, about a hundred million uh, excellent psychological therapists out there trying to, you know, go out and and help those people move back toward reality. I don't know how to do it. and uh, But I can tell you for sure, you do not create health by violating nature. You are a product of nature. Everything that people are trying to get rid of are things that are integral functioning components of themselves. And you don't get healthy that way. That what? How crazy is that? So anyway, I'll stop talking about that now, but <clears throat> it's interesting to observe that uh, we we have this this uh, surety that that is abundant. People who are, know what the right thing is to do, and I know many of them are scared and they're just clinging to something that uh, allows them to feel like they're secure and like they know what to do, and uh, and that leads us to another problem. Actually, and I don't want to wander too much which I'm prone to do because my brain thinks about a lot of things all at once or very quickly. So I don't want to wander too off, but it does bring us to another problem, which is people being governed by fear. And, uh, and I would say that this, even though it's not part of my original plan to talk about depression, that it is a major problem. We have a lot of people who are absolutely... Um, governed by fear, and that is a component, if not the driving entity of their depression. Uh, fear is a is a is a problem biochemically. It's a problem for our brain chemistry. It's a problem for our body chemistry. It's a problem for our immune chemistry. And uh, I know I'm bouncing back and forth here a little bit from depression to the problems of the last two years, but I have to tell you they are connected because depression and suicide and uh, just a lot of psychological distress problems over the last two years have skyrocketed. We've never seen anything like this. And uh, of course it has because uh, depression is so often a product of being governed by fear. So that's that's an interesting challenge we have today. And uh, I was just listening uh, yesterday actually to uh, Joe Dispenza and who has become quite a voice for um, a kind of positive psychology. I, th- I think he's out there on the cutting edge with, with uh, a relatively handful of people and uh, doing a lot of great work with meditation and with changing people's belief structure about, um, you know, basing their future on the past. And uh, basing your future on the past certainly leads you to make decisions which are quite destructive. You you assume from the past that you're a victim. Maybe you never were a victim. It was just a series of choices, uh, maybe made by you, maybe made by people who had, you know, influence over you, parents or teachers or, you know, people providing your food at college or, you know, whatever, uh, people who had some degree of control over you. Um, 
But it's a series of choices, nevertheless, uh, that have led uh, to the situation people are in, and then, uh, but they look at that as though they are a victim, and they're scared of being a victim, and so then they make radical wrong decisions that go against nature in order to try to stop being a victim. Of course, they're the wrong decisions. You don't become... You you don't stop being a victim that way. You stop being a victim by learning how to be in harmony with nature. So uh, fear is the driving entity there. And then uh, the the phenomenon that Joe Dispenza talks about, which is treating the future like it's a product of the past. And and so we, we end up believing the past and our past experiences and that dictates our future. But we don't believe the past fairly. We believe it incorrectly because we tend to highlight those things that were painful or threatening. And we tend to remember those the most. They have the most influence, even though that that makes up, you know, like 0.01% maybe of our past. Um, in fact, it's an interesting thing. Uh, as a as a natural healer and a chiropractor, um, I find it an interesting phenomenon that people will come in and say they're in pain all the time. But if you actually chart their pain, you find out that they're having uh, serious painful incidents that last maybe 20 or 30 seconds that are only happening... Um, you know, four or five, six times a day, sometimes only two or three times a day. And they will still insist that they are in pain all of the time. And uh, what's what they what they mean, of course, they're they're not being they're not being dishonest. What they mean is that the pain they're never quite free from the threat of pain occurring. But of course, they don't govern their life like that. They don't, they don't, they end up living their life based on the fact that they have these pain incidents, even though they make up 0.01% of their actual day. And, and that, that number is probably not dead accurate, but it, it, it gives you the idea. And I, and I think it's actually in the range of, of where it really is. Uh, so they're having pain that much of the time, and yet they will insist that they're having pain all the time. And I think this is true, um, as true as of pain as it is of, of what Dr. Joe Dispenza uh, talks about, which is that uh, even though these threatening moments make up 0.01% or less of our past, because they were threatening, we assign more value to them. So then in the present, we make decisions as though that makes up our whole life and as though that is a certain reality going forward. The consequence is we recreate that reality and we don't just create that reality, we create more of that reality than we had before because that's what we believe. That's what we're recreating mentally. That's what we're focusing on. That's what we're attracting. That's what we're, our, our body chemistry and our brain chemistry is operating in that uh uh, octave of consciousness <clears throat> instead of moving to a higher octave of consciousness we're operating in that one or even moving lower because we're moving to an octave of consciousness where all of those threats that happened in our past actually have more uh, emphasis than they had before and we thus create more and more of that this it's possible that this is how people age and die it's it's actually possible it's not uh, um 
based on Dr. Dispenza's research, I would have to say that it looks to me like it's a real possibility that the reason we age and die is this exact pattern. We're assigning over and over again more value uh, to the things that were painful, difficult, threatening moments, crises moments. And so then every morning when we wake up, we start our day with a belief system with that all of those problems a little more ingrained in our belief system. We're more afraid of them and we create more of them. We look for more of them. Our body behaves, our chemistry, our biochemistry behaves as though there are more of those problems. And then that becomes um, this snowball rolling downhill, unfortunately, that just is gathering up uh, more and more mass as it goes. And that just takes it downhill all the faster and that continues until our body chemistry is in a complete state of malfunctioning and we're dying. And Dr. Joe Dispenza has shown in his events uh, by measuring telomeres and other means, he's shown that by actually letting go of that and shifting your thinking to a thinking that you choose, it actually creates a... Uh, uh, an immediate improvement in your genetic health. You actually add who knows how many years of your life and quality years, uh, better quality than the past because you've now let go of that pattern you are recreating every time. And uh, if I'm not doing this justice, forget what I had to say and go back to the source, which is Dr. Joe Dispenza. And uh, I I think probably if you just go on YouTube and listen to him speak uh after eight or ten of his of his interviews, you'll probably start to get the idea, and you'll understand what in the world I'm talking about. Maybe you'll take um, a seminar or two of his and uh, come away with a, with a whole different vantage point on life. Of course, meditation is part of that. We've already talked about meditation in part one of depression defense, <clears throat> and uh, but. Uh, Dr. Joe Dispenza is 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 out on the cutting edge. I don't know if he's the cutting edge or if there are people that are doing a better job than he is. He's great at marketing. He's great at at getting what he's talking about out there in front of people and uh, his events are full and he's transforming people's lives. But he does it in part by getting rid of fear. He doesn't talk that much about fear, a little bit, but Basically, what he's doing is getting you out of fear, which is always based on the past. It's it's the anticipation. Fear is the anticipation of pain, of some kind of pain, right? That's what fear is. That's not an acronym or anything for fear. It's what it is. It's the anticipation of pain. But um, uh, But it's based on the past. It's based on assumptions about the past. And, uh, and also... Uh, you know, it's based on those crises moments. And so fear is never very, very accurate and it's never very useful. And I have a saying that I I came up with that's my own that says, uh, are you ready for this? It's a, no, it's not any more powerful than what I've already said, but it is important and and it's the sort of thing that I hope people can actually believe because if you believe this, if you really choose to believe it, it will change everything about your life going forward 
And it goes like this. Every decision we make out of fear is the wrong decision. Now, the vast majority of the time, the decision is actually wrong, i.e., it is the worst possible decision. It is the most likely to create problems in the future, etc., etc. When you make a decision out of fear, you're always wrong. Always, always, always. Okay. Sometimes, i.e., being chased by a tiger, it's the right decision, but immediately, once you start running away, immediately fear becomes your enemy. It it may have been appropriate to go away from that, but instantly, not not 20 seconds from now or 30 seconds from now or a minute from now, instantly it becomes your enemy. So it may have been helpful in turning you around, and that's what fear is really for. Fear is just a, a very short-term burst of survival mechanism. We just don't like fear, and so we are more afraid of being afraid, and so we create a whole life based on fear, and every decision is wrong. So, <clears throat> once you start to run away from the tiger, immediately you need to be thinking, creating a better outcome, believing in a better outcome, having creative thinking, so that you can come up with a solution that will work, so that you can actually get away. If you can't do that, uh, the tiger can probably outrun you. So, basically, uh, you might have a few more steps, but you're dead. Now, if the tiger's close enough and it's coming for you, it's going to get you no matter what you do. But, again, fear wouldn't have saved you, right? So you have to immediately, when fear arrives, you have to immediately transform it into something else or it becomes your enemy. And uh, people who live by fear are just making a series of wrong decisions. Now, there's another component of that, and that is that when we make decisions out of fear, even if they seem to be the right decision. So uh, if you feel fear and so you pray, that's a good decision. Uh, immediately, though, the fear needs to transform into faith in your prayer. If it doesn't, what will happen is everything that happens from there forward will be tainted by the fear and it will tend to create abnormal outcomes going forward. And Dr. Joe Dispenza's work may explain why that happens. As a natural healer, we're, I'm an observer of nature. That's what natural healers do. It's the distinction, really, between natural healers and alternative healers. Alternative healers are just using alternative methods to treat disease. And I, I'm grateful for them. They do a lot of good. But they're not the same thing as natural healers. Natural healers are observing nature. And they're interested in doing what nature wants. Or if they're going to use something that's not natural, it's going to be to the end of trying to push a person back toward balance in nature. Because they're always thinking about what nature wants and does. Because they know that health, real health, and happiness come from a kind of harmony with nature. And uh, <clears throat> so... The problem, obviously, is that we observe nature and we see uh, that as we get out of balance with nature, disease starts to appear. As we get out of balance with nature, we're less happy. As we get out of balance with nature, the vitality that flows into people in balance with nature uh, is 
just not flowing in. And when people make decisions out of fear, they, they invariably are trying to block what is natural and healthy from coming into their lives. They're actually trying to stop it from happening. And, uh, and that is just the wrong decision. We need to make decisions out of a kind of faith and awareness and um, awakening where, and I hesitate now, you've got to be careful about using the word awakening because people think you mean woke, uh, but woke people are asleep. We're, we're talking about a real awakening, this awakening where you're not making decisions out of fear. And that is the essence of it. So when we're talking about depression, this is absolutely essential that we begin to move away from making decisions out of fear. And uh, as we do, we're going to find that the brain chemistry changes, the body chemistry changes. We're going to have fewer and fewer incidents where depression just comes in and takes control. Depression is a is a sort of uh, short circuit that happens as a result of too many decisions made out of fear. And uh, of course, if you have if you lack experience with life and something truly difficult happens to you, of course, it's going to hijack you. Even if you have all this information, until you have real experience dealing with it, it's going to take you out. And that's expected. That's part of life. Sometimes we get surprised and blindsided and something knocks us down. We had no idea that it could be this bad. And we might have felt the threat coming and we might have even created it with some little fears that are from our past, but <clears throat> we didn't expect this. And it, it hits us. We expect a better outcome. We don't know how to create it yet. We don't have that experience. And it takes us out and puts us into a state of depression. And it can be, you know, major chronic depression. And uh, so in that situation... It's completely understandable to find yourself in the depressed state. And, and I think it happens to a lot of people who go through a bumpy ride. Maybe they come from a past that encourages that bumpy ride. Or, or maybe everybody goes through it. I, I don't know. I don't know what percentage of people go through something like that in their life. But it seems likely as part of the growing process, maturing process of being a human, that you run into this thing where the the um the patterns the scripting you have in your mind that you listen to all the time in your self talk um that those gang up on you and create in one way or another a situation that just takes you out that feels like a blindside even if you created it that beats you up that makes you feel terrible and there's no way until you've gone through it once and learn about it that you can defend against it so uh, no amount of preparation would have stopped it from happening. Uh, maybe we could teach a person to discipline their thoughts early on so that it didn't become as chronic, but it's going to happen, you know, initially, no matter what, I think. So in that situation, now we have to fight our way out of that. And the, the danger is that if that is a big enough deal and it lasts for long enough, that it may end up becoming the governing function of your life. And therein lies the challenge. If we have a governing 
uh, component of our lives that actually dictates to us that depression is a part of the past. It's in our body chemistry. The body tells the brain. Now we're in a depressed state. You get up, you go through the day. Unless something extraordinary happens that's good, or maybe your body uh, goes through a natural cleansing cycle or something like that, and you feel unusually good, and then you're like, huh, I'm not depressed today. Unless that happens, you basically stay in depression all of the time. And, uh, and so... Uh, depression is a lot like pain in that respect, in that there's kind of a cycle of depression. If you can interrupt it, then the person can feel better because the feedback they're getting from their body is different. But if that pattern is deeply ingrained because it's been there a long time, then we're going to have problems getting out of that pattern. We're going to have problems because every day when you wake up, your body chemistry is going to tell your brain, yep, we're still depressed. And so the brain gets up, starts looking for reasons to be depressed. So uh, it becomes essential that uh, we recreate our day at the beginning of the day. It becomes essential that we understand that if we're making a decision out of fear, it's the wrong decision. Um, that, that decision, um, and I, I started to talk about this and then my mind wandered and I started talking about other things, so I'm going to go back to it. That um, as an observer of nature, we can see that the the result of making a decision out of fear seems to taint the future from then on. And we don't have to know what Dr. Joe Dispenda, Dispenza knows. We'd like to know it because that's proving to be very useful information. But we don't have to know it to observe the phenomenon that when you make decisions out of fear, it starts affecting the future. And um, Joe Dispenza is showing us that's probably because it's changing the neurological patterning, uh, neurons that fire together, wire together, and then the wired ones fire together. So you get this neurological pattern that's repeating, and uh, you might be able to get out of that alone, but you don't have that. You have the feedback from the body whose chemistry has changed because of the depression. <clears throat> and um, so the body keeps feeding this input back to the brain. Hey, we're in a depressed state. And then pretty soon you're, you're stuck there. And uh, so when you make decisions out of fear, it's the same thing and it's directly related to depression. You make a decision out of fear and the, the, the body keeps giving you feedback about the fear. Hey, we're in a fearful state. The brain starts to wire that way and it taints everything you do from then on. So even if it's the right decision that you made out of fear, it's the wrong decision because it's going to change your future for the in in a in a in a bad way in a in a harmful way in a let's say a sick way and it's going to make your future sick because you made a decision out of fear so bottom line is uh, i hope that you've you know I've, I've wandered a bit this morning probably too early to be uh, on this kind of depth of a subject but the bottom line is this don't make decisions out of fear if you catch yourself making a decision out of fear Choose to believe, choose to trust me, choose to have faith in the fact that those decisions are the wrong decisions and start asking yourself the question, what can I do to be in harmony with nature instead? What can I do to be powerful instead? What can I do, what can I believe 
that is filled with faith and prosperity instead. And in the beginning, you might get nothing. Uh, one of the challenges in this, I, and when I teach cultivation, when I teach, teach training yourself to be a better person, which is the, the oriental idea of cultivation, you're, you're training virtues into yourself. Um, when I teach those classes, and believe me, I work on them too, so please don't let me sound like I'm above anyone. It's always a work in progress for humans. That's the deal. Okay, so uh, I don't get to be exempt from that, neither do you, but if you have cultivation training and you take it to heart, you have a great advantage every time you need to make a fundamental change in your life. And that advantage is that you can access the fact that you need to make a change and you can go ahead and make that change versus someone who can't even notice that they need to make a change or they know a change needs to happen, but they think it's coming from outside themselves. The cultivated person can make those changes from inside. Well, one of the things I teach in my cultivation classes is <clears throat> that you have to have the skill of being able to sit in a vacuum. Now, I'm not talking about physically sit in a physical vacuum. That has nothing to do with it. You have to have the ability to not know, to not have any answer, and sit there patiently waiting for the answer to come. Nature abhors a vacuum. And when you just don't know what to do, and you sit there and go, I'm going to sit here and don't know what to do until I know what to do. I'm not going to reach for what my parents did or what my fear in the past dictates that I should do or my assumptions in the past dictate that I should do. I'm not going to do any of those things. I am not going to grasp at something that is conveniently located as another of the same stupid decisions that got me into this trouble. I am going to sit here in a vacuum until I know what to do. And it might come after an hour, or it might come after 10 years. Uh, it can take time. It can be a lot of work to sit in a vacuum. It depends on how much baggage is in the way. I, I have a theory, and the theory is that the answer to all of our questions uh, is there's this, there's this, this like oracle that exists in every person's mind, heart, spirit, soul, something. Everybody has it. It's, it's this bright, shining orb that is the oracle of perfect information, perfect answers. I believe everybody has that. I think it's implanted into us. I think we're divine beings, and I think that's part of who we are, and it's right in there. And the problem is most people don't have the key word to access that. And so they can't just go there, open it up, and read what they need to know. So they kind of sit in ignorance because the key word is missing. But here's the thing. I believe when you ask a question sincerely, you're not just looking to pick up more of your own baggage and use that. But you ask a question sincerely because you do not know. Here's my belief. I believe the answer is immediately sent from that oracle to the conscious mind. But that most people have so much baggage in the way that it's 
not most people maybe, but some people, a lot of people, have so much baggage in the way that it's actually blocking the access of that answer. And so if that's you, the longer you sit in the vacuum saying, I don't know, I don't know, I'm waiting for the answer. I'll know it when I see it. But I'm not going to just buy what I always bought in the past. I'm not just going to believe the answer I always believed in the past. I'm going to wait until I have the right answer. That the, As you wait and that vacuum forms, it starts to vacuum your garbage out of the way. But if you've got lots and lots of garbage, it's not going to be a minute or an hour. It's going to be days or months or years. And uh, it takes some time. But as soon as the baggage is out of the way enough, then that shoom, faster than the speed of light, that answer is going to come from the oracle. It's already it's just waiting behind the baggage. As soon as the baggage is out of the way, shoom, this beam of light comes through the darkness, hits your conscious mind. Everything illuminates. You know just what to do on that subject. And now you can move forward. And uh, it's funny, uh, the vacuum, if you allow it to exist, uh, even if there's baggage in the way and you can't get that beam of light by, um, that vacuum will attract information into your life. Somebody will hand you a book or a seminar or you'll watch something or listen to something. Observe something in nature. I don't know, anything. Something that like, whoa, I get it now, right? Um, and all of a sudden you you read this book and you're like, this, this, this takes me to the next step. Right? This is this is the answer I was looking for so I can get moving forward. But that would never have come, either in the form of a book or from your inner knower, the oracle that exists within you. Uh, that would have never come if you couldn't sit in a vacuum, if you couldn't sit there in the utter <laughs> abject terror of not knowing, of needing to know, but not knowing. That's what we have to do. We have to be able to do that. And so um, I, I, think, I think it's always been a problem for humans. But I think it might be worse today in a way because if you want to know the answer to something, you can get online and keep getting other people's trash or worse yet, intentional deception from sinister powers who just want to be in power over you, right? Um, and uh, but both of those are bad things. Other people's trash, lies from sinister powers are both bad things. The only thing is the lies from sinister power powers is going to be packaged in a way that they think you'll buy. So they're packaging it to sucker you. They're packaging it to suck you in and get you to believe it. And so they're trying to get you to feel like that's the right decision by the way they package it. Uh, but the real problem is you have faith and you can sit in a vacuum, then you get the right answer. But if you're acting out of fear and you just want to hurry up, because how terrifying is it not to know? And you just want to hurry up and do something. The problem is then you're going to accept what sounds good and that's going to be from those people in power who just want to control you. And so um, 
unfortunately, those are real things, but they all lead us to the same conclusion, which is we need to make decisions out of faith, not fear. And when you're waiting for the intelligent response, that's a decision out of faith. It may, it may go against you. It may, it may cause your gut to feel all wrenched up because you're going against your own grain. But it's the only way to make the right decision. So uh, all of this concludes in the same thing. We have to be careful not to hurry and grab something out of fear because it'll always be wrong. All right. Uh, I was just going to round out on the discussion of healing your brain. I finished up with talking about sleeping. And uh, uh, you might remember those five points from the previous discussion. I'll just review them really quick. Being asleep between 11 and 6. Never going past the point of of fatigue in anything. Uh, Three 15-minute walks a day which those can be used to deal with fatigue. If you're doing something and you start to feel fatigue, stop, take your 15-minute walk. And then when you come back, you, you know, guess what? You'll, you'll have rejuvenated yourself and you can go back to work. Um, number four, no sugar, right? And then number five is no device time. Closer than two hours to bedtime, but if you have a serious problem, the more serious the problem, the more important it is that you reduce or, in some cases, yes, eliminate device time. Don't look at the darn thing at all. Don't look at any screen in the modern world at all if you have a really severe case. Now, this is going to be hard if you have a job where you work at a computer, but you can do a lot of things. You can take some vacation, and on that vacation, go out into nature. Don't look at devices. And if you have to drive somewhere, use a, use a, the old paper map. Don't look at a screen. And you can, when you go back to work after a week or two, and of course, by then, your brain has done a lot of healing. And when you go back to work, um, when you take a break, from the computer, take a break often. When you take a break, go find a window and look at things outside. It doesn't matter what you look at. Look at different things. Start counting the different kinds of things that you notice. There's a blade of grass, there's a bird, there's a car, there's a license plate, there's a tire, there's a stripe. There's a tree, there's a bird in the tree. There's a nest, there's a bug, there's a person. Um, there's a dress. Just start looking outside at different things and let your brain go to, like here on this table in front of me, uh, my kids have been eating chips and salsa. So there's salsa, organic salsa. There's, there's organic chips. There's sea salt. There are flowers I bought my wife for Mother's Day. There's a box. I don't know what in the world it's doing. Looks like it has some Easter stuff in that got... Uh, either not put away or dug back out for some reason. Um, so I'm, there's a table, there's a, there's a tile floor. There are things that I can notice. And what that does, it allows my brain and my eyes to focus on real things. And that will calm that brain right back down very quickly. It's the most useful tool I know of 
for for calming the brain back down from devices. So when you come back and you're going back to work, you take that break and you do it often. Uh, you need to do it every 45 minutes, really. You need to do it less than an hour. <clears throat> 30 minutes would be better, although for many people that's that's just too often. But you only need two or three minutes um, break to get that brain to calm back down. And this is going to transform you. It's a very practical thing to transform you from uh, the stress state that is prone to depression um, that unfortunately probably triggers your fear, that probably triggers your body chemistry, that triggers you in every way to continue being sick, to continue being depressed. This is going to go out and it's going to free that up. It's such a simple thing. Please go try it. Please go try it. So the if you look at the five brain health, brain healing exercises uh, and, or, or rules and you just sort of take a step back, what you notice is all we're trying to do is get the brain to do something real and natural that is gently stimulating but never overstimulating or stressful. That's it. That's the whole gig. We want gentle, pleasant stimulation for the brain and we want it to be real stimulation, not not uh, not the kind of stimulation that comes from uh, sugars, you know, uh, processed sweeteners, which are just stimulating with no nutrition really attached. Um, that's that's overstimulating. But in nature, it doesn't work that way. In nature, uh, sucrose exists, but it's bound to trace minerals and medicines and other nutrients that exist in the sugar cane. And so when you consume that, you 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 get something natural and whole as opposed to overstimulating and, and synthetic, or at least processed to the point of being very unnatural. So if you look at the overarching principles, we're just trying to get in harmony with nature, and we're trying to do it in a gentle, stimulating way, and we're trying to encourage gentle, in healthy stimulation. By the way, it's very good for your eyes to just look at, um, at individual items Many of you, if you've been looking at devices, you've probably noticed your vision's going downhill. Part of it is the flat screen, part of it is the stress response, and part of it is that the light coming off of that is hijacking a receptor in your eyes, and your eyes are actually trying to protect themselves. They're actually, they're actually inhibiting the amount of light coming in as a method of protecting themselves from the damage that's happening to the receptor in your eye that's being hijacked by that artificial blue light. So your eyes, I guarantee it, if you've been looking at a device a lot, your eyes have gotten a little bit worse. And um, computers are better than phones. Uh, tablets actually are better than phones also, although um, basically screens in general are the problem. And so um, this is a very good exercise to help heal your eyes and you're going to start getting away from the device and doing this instead. You're just going to go around and and make these mental notes. It's good for your brain. It's brain acrobatics and uh, and uh, helps that brain learn uh, to be healthy and to be vigorous. And it's so simple. Please do it. All right. Uh, finally, <clears throat> exercise. So we've only got about eight minutes before this time's out and I have to stop. So... I'm just going to say very briefly, um, there have been loads of studies showing 
that exercise helps with depression. And um, so any kind of exercise is helpful. Partly because it changes your body chemistry, which then gives a different feedback to your brain. So that's good. But the most important component, so it doesn't matter. Walking outside three 15-minute walks a day is, is actually great. Um, exercise works a little bit better for depression if you push your body just a little bit. Now, I don't want to put anybody in the hospital from overdoing it. But get out and push your body just a little. You know what that means. You know what you're capable of. Just take it up to what you're capable of and, and push it, hold it right up there for just a few minutes and let your body um, go through some some uh, some stress response to exercise and it helps change your body chemistry, lower inflammation, and it'll help get rid of depression. There's another exercise that's super important and that's breathing. And we want a diaphragm breathe. The diaphragm is the switch between your conscious and subconscious mind. And by controlling that diaphragm and learning to manage it very, very intelligently, having lots of control and connection to that diaphragm, you you actually gain um, a conscious access to subconscious processes. And when you start to get feedback that's faulty, that you don't want, you recognize it instead of believing it. Many people, as soon as that feedback comes into their head, they believe it. They think it's real. And um, this will help you to not believe that. That's actually how people get sick, by the way, who are not sick. So um, one of the interesting things is that um, uh, everything I know objectively about uh, the the last two years and the illness that ran around um, was that it really wasn't that bad. It was actually very, very mild. But people who bought into the story, who thought that it was severe, uh, who believed that, who spent way too much time listening to propaganda about how bad it was, got a lot sicker. And um, in cultures where they didn't do any of that, they didn't get sick at all. Like they would, they would get, I mean, it, it might be serious enough to, to be uncomfortable if they were in the right condition for it, but they really didn't get sick. As far as I can tell, the illness was a propaganda-based illness. Um, that if there had been no news releases whatsoever about it, if everyone would have just shut up and not talked about it, that uh, it would have been a mild flu flu year. You know, no, nobody would have or two years. You know, nobody would have uh, died beyond beyond the usual numbers and probably fewer. Uh, that it that it was a psychological illness, and that the mechanism by which that happens is that you start to feel sympathetically what you hear about. Everybody does. Anybody who's been through any kind of medical school knows that because when you're learning about diseases in pathology, you find out you have every one of them, right? And it's it's because your body starts to respond sympathetically when you learn about diseases. So if you had the ability to control your diaphragm, what would have happened is you would have been able to intercept that information coming in and go, hmm, nope, and gotten rid of it and you would have chosen something else instead. That's a function of being able to control your diaphragm. It truly is. So uh, what would happen is uh, the, the, none of the people going to medical school would have gotten actually s- sick with everything. You know, None of the men would have had PMS, etc. Um, I mean, it's funny, but it's kind of true. And, um, and then what would have happened is uh, if everybody had that ability when uh, the last two years came around, why, 
we would have discovered that nobody would have been significantly sick because no one would have believed when when the process started, nobody would have believed it. Nobody would have bought it. Right? Even people who, who believed that it was that it was a conspiracy, who believed it was propaganda, who believed it was a lie, who believed it was just trying to gain control over people, even people who believed that, if they if they listened a little too much to people talking about, oh yeah, so and so is so sick with it, you know, and they start buying into that, then when they start to get sick at the first hint of it, guess what happens? They they're hijacked, right? All of a sudden this sympathetic feedback comes in and their their brain goes, oh my goodness, I guess I'm sick with it. And pretty soon they're really sick with it because they're sympathizing and then they're believing it. And the reason they can't intercept that and be like, yeah, no, no, that's, that's, that's from outside me. That's not me. The reason they can't do that and then just not get sick is because they don't have control of their diaphragm. So uh, singers think they have control of their diaphragm but they don't. They haven't really isolated their diaphragm. I'm going to teach you right now in the next minute or so how to isolate your diaphragm. So what you're going to do is you're going to lay on your back uh, to start with. And you can do this in any position, but you're going to lay on your back to start with. You're going to put one hand over your navel and one hand in the middle of your chest, okay, right between your nipples. And you're going to take deep breaths, and as you breathe in the belly is going to go out, but the chest is not going to move. Some people find it helpful to envision a long curved implement that goes in their mouth as they breathe in. And because it's long and curved, it goes down and pushes their belly out. And then as they breathe out, the belly comes in and it pushes the implement out because their breath and their belly is pushing the implement out. And that helps them mentally to get that going. The diaphragm is a dome-shaped muscle. Uh, the convex side of the dome is facing upward towards your heart. And the bottom part of the diaphragm is attached around the, the lower ribs. As you breathe in with your diaphragm, the diaphragm contracts. And from its stretched dome shape, it has the ability to go downward toward the attachment sites until it's all the way flat. When it gets all the way flat, it will push your belly way out. And I wish you could watch me do it. I have about four inches of travel in my belly from all the way in to all the way out with my diaphragm. That's the diaphragm controlling that. So as I breathe in, my diaphragm pushes my belly way out. Everything stretches. Okay. Many people learn early in life to resist this because, oh no, heaven forbid my belly sticks out, right? End of the world. Kids are going to make fun of me, whatever, right? And I understand that. I don't even know, but you're making your future based on the past and you're doing it out of fear. Guess what? You made the wrong decision, right? What you needed to do was learn how to diaphragm breathe, right? So now we're going to fix that. We're going to stop acting out of fear. We're going to let that fear go. It's going to be painful for some of you. We're going to let it go and we're going to diaphragm breathe. So practice that. Do 10 deep diaphragm breaths every hour that you're awake all the time. If you will faithfully do that, you will have control of your diaphragm. 
you might need to learn to do it laying on your back. If you're, if you're not good at it, you might need to learn laying on your back. I'm completely out of time, so I have to stop here. But I promise you, that's enough information. You will get to intercept stuff coming in that you don't want. If you have control of your diaphragm, please learn to do it. Thanks so much. I hope that you've enjoyed parts one and part two of depression defense. I hope that you use it and you go make a change.